And speaking of the world, I want to take you to Australia. Can your time capsule, time machine, go back to the year 2000? And I want to talk to you about Rulon Gardner. How many of you remember Rulon Gardner? I remember Rulon Gardner. He's a beast of a man. Um, in the legendary wrestling match in the Olympics in 2000, was he beat Russian um, Alexander Karolin. Carolyn was an undefeated wrestler. And, and just um, in this match, Gardner scored the first points and in what is one of the biggest upsets in Olympic wrestling history, if not Olympic history altogether, Gardner defeated um, uh, Carolyn. But Gardner's life has not been filled with mountaintops. Get this. When he was in third grade at like a show and tell thing, he pierced his abdomen with an arrow and then had to go to the ER to get it removed. In 2002, two years after this event, he was in a snowmobiling accident that left, that left him lost in the woods for, I think, overnight. It was so long and so bad that he got frostbite on his feet and had to get a toe removed. Um, and, and then I think all of the feeling in one of his feet is gone. In 2004, he was in a motorcycle accident and he flew over the handlebars and got up and walked away. In 2007, he was in a seaplane accident where the plane went from 140 miles an hour to zero in two seconds, right? Had to bail, end up floating in 44 degree water while he awaited rescue and lost all of the things in there. And the moral of the story is don't get in a moving vehicle with Rulon Gardner. But, but in addition to this, Gardner has had troubled marriages, a lot of heartache to endure, had to file bankruptcy, which was terribly difficult to him. Lots of trials and hardships for a man who is constantly fighting and overcoming them. And as we pivot to the Bible this morning... We're going to look at another wrestling match, and we're going to look at another man, Jacob, who was always fighting and striving and scheming. Obstacle after obstacle, thing to overcome after thing to overcome. And what I want us to see in this passage that we're about to to read is that God will stop at nothing to help us see that he is everything. He will go to whatever length possible to help us see that he is everything we need. So we're going to, it's a long passage. Once again, this morning, we'll kind of read it as we go. So if you look uh, with me to Genesis chapter 32, um, we're going to read verses one through eight. Our first point is when trials surround us. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob went on his way and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord, Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I've been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. 
Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with flocks, herds, and camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Jacob is headed away from Laban, his father-in-law. He has a large family in tow in lots and lots of goats and stuff due to weird breeding practices that we talked about last week. And, and he has his wives, he has kids, his slaves, and just all of these people. And he's heading back to the land that he came from, back to where he belongs. And he gets a vision from angels. Now, this is the second time Jacob has had a vision from angels. Remember, the first was about 14 years ago now, where Jacob was visited by angels when he was sleeping on a rock in the stairway to heaven. You might remember that. And I imagine if you were visited by angels, you would get some sort of solace that you might be doing the right thing or going in the right direction. I'm not sure. But he he makes note that God's angels are still with him, still preserving him, still over him. And then the text just kind of moves on. Right? He goes, oh, call this place two camps. He names it that. He just kind of goes forward. But I want to point out something before we get too far past that, that something keeps happening over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. And that is this, that God is up to something in our world, that he's never just far away existing in the corners of the cosmos and then occasionally touches down, but that he's always with his people, always guiding, always showing them uh, what they should do, always appearing in weird places, always working behind the scenes. We have angels showing up in gardens, keeping Adam and Eve out. We have other appearances of angels on stairways to heaven. We have Abraham being interrupted by an angel of the Lord when he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac. God is constantly working. He is constantly involved in the world. And this is one of the things that Genesis is inviting us into, is to see that God is always up to something. One one writer I was reading this this week said that we live in a crowded cosmos. And I love that, because it's like there's all this stuff going on, the stuff we can't see, but God is actually working in. It's crowded with his activity even if we do not know it. So Genesis reminds us of this and then quickly moves past it because Jacob's visit by the angels is quickly hampered by another reality, Esau, and the fact that he's going to have to see him again. Now, if you're Jacob, this is not good news for you. If you remember, we talked a while ago about a man Uh, Jacob, who stole his birthright from his brother Esau, right? Esau sold it to him for some porridge. And then Jacob also stole, through deception and scheming, his brother's blessing. And so Esau was so mad that he set out to kill his brother, and, and Jacob had to flee for lots and lots of years. And now he has to confront his brother, And Jacob, the deceiver, the schemer, and the sneak is having to look his past fully in the face and then deal with the situation that seems 
insurmountable to him. What will the schemer do now? How will he get through it? And some of us, we have moments in our lives, like Jacob, where we've done some things in our past, some, maybe some things in the present, where we've, we've been maybe a little bit more like Jacob than we'd like. And we come face to face with our fear and our shame and our guilt, and we have to deal with it. Well, here we see Jacob having to deal with all of the things he's done, and all of that stuff is coming home to roost. But what does Jacob do? He keeps scheming, because that's who Jacob is. He keeps planning. So he, he sends messengers ahead of his brother, or ahead of him, say, go tell him that you know he's coming with all of the stuff and people, and then his worst fears are confirmed that not only is he going to have to encounter Esau, but Esau is coming to him, and he has 400 people with him. And if you're Jacob, you are scared because that does not sound like good news. It sounds like the worst is about to happen, which leads to our next point. When God seems to fail us, look at verse nine. Then Jacob said, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have sown to your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, you may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as, a, as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me and leave me in some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. He also took the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals. Say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two slave women, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob keeps scheming. But his plan, it's not feeling good enough because Esau's on his way and there's nothing he can do. So what does Jacob do? What do you do when you seem to run out of options? Probably the same thing Jacob does. He prays. And I want us to notice how Jacob begins to pray. Because back in chapter 28, he was approached by God with these angels and given a promise that he would, that he would be blessed. God passes that promise on to him. 
And then Jacob commits to God that, God, if you do all this, I'm going to follow you. And now it doesn't really seem like God's going to come through. So Jacob calls out to God to be who God says he is. He calls out to God, God, would you live up to what you said? Would you live up to who you are? Look at verse nine. He says, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. Right? He's looking at, he says that in light of his reality that it doesn't seem like I'm gonna prosper. It seems like I'm going to get killed by my brother. And then in verse 12, he said, you have said, I will cause you to prosper and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. He appeals to God. Jacob remembers all that God said. And he's like, God, that doesn't seem like what's gonna happen to me. He's realizing his reality and what God told him don't seem to line up at all. And maybe you can, you've been or you are in a place like Jacob where you look at your life and the circumstances you find yourself in and you say, God, my present reality does not really line up with who you say you are. God, I can't reconcile in my head how this thing matches up with your character. God, you say you are good, but my life doesn't feel that way right now. Well, what we have in this text is a model for what to do when that happens. And the model is to seek God and to call out to him for who he is. Because God can handle the questions. But I want to point out something so interesting about Jacob to me. We've seen Jacob kind of go through life. And he like never addresses God. He never addresses who God is. He goes to find a wife. Like he gets, if you would read back in, I think it's chapter 29, he goes to find a wife. And like this kind of just seems coincidental, like how easy it is for, to find a wife. And then he accumulates kids and wealth. And he doesn't attri- seem to attribute any of it to the fact that God has been watching over his life. And now when the situation's hard, Jacob's like, hey God, you got to step in. He's been stepping in all along. But God wasn't concerned with rubbing Jacob's face in all his wrongdoings. This was actually part of God's plan because God kept showing up in Jacob's life no matter what. And let's remember, friends, that all of the mess that Jacob is in is Jacob's fault. So some of us go through life giving little attention to God. And then when things go south, because of something we've done, because of something that's been done to us, we're like, God, where are you? God, how could you act this way? And we're a lot like Jacob. We make a mess of relationships. We gossip. We stir up dissension. We get bitter about life. We just ignore God. We become apathetic about him. And then when things get hard, we're like, God, where are you at? Well, you haven't been acknowledging God at all. 
But God will stop at nothing to help Jacob and to help us see that he is everything. So he calls out to the God who will bless him and appeals to him for help. Then Jacob, being Jacob, he just keeps making a plan. He's got got this, divide my family up. I'm going to, okay, we got this plan. So if Jacob attacks us, or if Esau attacks us, we, one of them will survive. And then he, he gathers all of this, these flocks and herds as like a peace offering to his brother, right? Thinking like maybe I can just give him so much stuff that he might forgive me. And it's clear that this offering is, is kind of generous. Jacob is, is, you know, he's fighting for his life now and he's given him so much, uh, so many herds that they could even like keep reproducing and make Esau wealthy. So he's almost trying to like pay Jacob back, or Esau back, wondering if this will be enough. He grabs his wife, slaves, sends them across the stream, and he's all alone. And it is in this aloneness that God will show up, which is the last point when grace comes to find us. Look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob replied, your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For he had, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle, that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Jacob is now finally and fully confronted by God. The schemer has run out of options. He's run out of plays. He's, he's, he, what is inevitable is that he's going to meet his brother and he cannot think of a way out of the situation. And so he calls out to God and God gets him alone and then this wrestling match takes place because God is using all of these circumstances to get a hold of Jacob's heart fully. The man who literally white-knuckled through every problem and obstacle he ever faced is finally wrestling with God in acknowledging his presence in his life and has finally come to the end of himself And he's looking at his past and he's reaching out for the God who claimed he would do something with his life. So the angel of the Lord shows up and he wrestles it out. It's a weird passage in the Bible. Somehow, Jacob gets the angel to tap, right? The angel's like, let me go. Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is now fully invested in what God had in mind for him when it seemed like he could care less before. The angel pleads to be let go and then he asks Jacob his name and Jacob 
says his name, which means heel grabber. And then, then the angel says, you're no longer going to be known as the heel grabber. You're going to be known as Israel, which sounds a lot like struggling or striving with God. And in the ancient world, having someone rename you is a way of showing authority over you. So he's being renamed and Jacob is now becoming aware of his place, that he is a subordinate to the angel he's wrestling with. And that he gets renamed striving with God because he's now going to strive and be victorious with God. He's going to struggle with God and not just with himself anymore. The heel grabber has become the one who strives alongside of God. So the angel finally blesses Jacob. And Jacob renames the place because he realizes in that moment that he was spared. The sun would have risen and that angel would have been there. What we know about God, at least, Jacob probably would have died. And what are we supposed to make of all this? Well, I think one thing was that this wrestling match was a way, and all of the circumstances leading up to it were a way of God getting Jacob's full attention. Uh, One scholar, Derek Kidner, says it this way. I like this. He says, the crippling and the naming show that God's ends were still the same. He would have all of Jacob's will to win, all of Jacob's will to attain and obtain, yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, God himself. God would get all of it. He would... He would ruin Jacob's self-sufficiency, his his thinking that he could do it all on his own, and he would get all of Jacob's attention because God would stop at nothing to help him realize that he is everything. And as we kind of pivot the text to our own hearts a little bit, I want to ask us, like, how are we to apply this? And how is God maybe trying to get your attention? Where are the areas of your life that you are tempted to be self-sufficient, to be a little bit more like Jacob, to take matters into your own hands, to forget God altogether? You might not even intentionally do that. You kind of just go through life because you feel like you can do things on your own because maybe you have. But I think one of the things that the text gives us and invites us into is a life that is submitted to God, that realizes that we need to be dependent upon him. What areas of your life do you need to give over to God and ask him to guide you and be in control of you? So here's one of the ways that we can do this and apply this to your own heart. I want you to start by naming your reality. If you're confused about how to start this process, here's where to start, naming your reality. Here's what I mean. Jacob was really clear about what was consuming his mind. He was clear that he was running from God. He was clear that he wasn't worthy of God. And he was clear that he had a really big obstacle. And that was the encounter with his brother Esau. It consumed his mind to the point that he was scheming and planning. And every single one of us on every single day goes through the day usually consumed by something. I'm consumed with what the doctor is going to say. I'm consumed with the fact that my kids don't seem to have a faith of their own. I'm consumed by the fact that my job just is, is really busy right now and it's tiring. I'm consumed by the fact 
that I don't seem to be able to get ahead in life. And those things just kind of operate in the subconscious of our mind all day long. And each day it can be something different, but sometimes it's the same thing for a season. I want you to name that thing. Like if you have a journal, literally write it down. This is what is on my mind right now. Because if there's a place and an opportunity for you to to kill your self-sufficiency, this is where it starts, by naming your reality. Maybe it's you're tired. And God, I don't seem to be able to get enough sleep. That's been my whole week. (laughs) Maybe you're in pain. God, when is this going to let go? Write it down. Second thing I want you to do is I want you to do what Jacob did. I want, to declare, I want you to declare truth to your own heart. Remember Jacob, he looked at his reality and he said, God, this doesn't line up with who you say you are. And so I want you to just start telling all the truth about God that you know to your own heart, even if it seems hard to believe at the time. God, you're good. Why am I going through the experience? I know you're good and I just want... I'm just going to believe. I'm going to set my mind. I believe you're good. Help my unbelief. God, I know you can give me the strength to get through this day. I believe you can. Help me do that. Just start start telling yourself all the true things you know about God. Maybe remind yourself of all the things he's done for you in the past. Declare that truth to your heart in light of your reality. What is God saying to you? Third, I want you to, to reflect on your moment. So we've, we've gone from like naming what we're going through and now we're going and we've declared truth about who God is. And then I want you to ask, like, how can I reflect on this moment? What is the invitation of God? Like, how can I actually follow him in obedience with the thing that is consuming my mind? Maybe that's just being more aware of who he is in your life. Maybe you actually need to go and make a relationship right with someone who you, you're intentioned with. Whatever it is, what is the invitation for you to follow after God in this moment? How can you turn it over to him? Next, you can repent of your self-sufficiency. You can just lay that down. You can declare it that, God, I've not been relying on you. I want to. Help me, Lord. Would you forgive me? And then what might be one of the hardest parts of this whole thing, I want you to confess it to a spouse or a friend. This is the area of my life that I just feel consumed. Because here's what I know. You cannot get through whatever you're going through on your own. The Lord has given you his spirit and he has given you his people, right? So lean into that. Because sometimes in the moment, you can't, you can't necessarily figure out what the truth is. You can't seem to believe enough for yourself. Well, let other people's faith support you in whatever it is that you're self-sufficient about, your work, your schooling, things going on at school. I don't know, whatever it is, and confess it to someone else and ask them to help you with that. Because here is the truth of the matter, friends. God used every part of Jacob's life to make him who he was. All of the stuff from his past, God used it to redeem him into his future. And he will stop at nothing, friends, to help us realize that he is everything. Your growth is not limited to your circumstances. 
your struggles, your shortcomings, or your sins. They are, in fact, the very things God uses to draw you to himself. In spite of being negligent about God and apathetic about God for all of his life, God didn't say, well, it's about time, Jacob. It's about time you showed up. I've been over here waiting for you. No, he was pursuing Jacob that whole entire time. And this is good news for self-sufficient people that God pursues us. Now, Jacob's full attention is on God. And notice that God's truth, his character, it never changed. God was still who he said he was. And he's still who he says he was to all of us. Maybe some of us in this room have been like resisting Jesus altogether. And things keep showing up, circumstances in our lives, things that keep reminding us about Jesus. Maybe that's why you keep coming to church and unsure why. Maybe you're resistant because of what's going on in your life, saying this doesn't compute with what I think God is like. But God just keeps invading your space no matter what. I want to encourage you to give yourself, your life to Jesus, the one who will stop at nothing to help you know that he is everything. One testimony I've enjoyed reading is Anne Lamont, who is an activist and an author and a writer. She resisted Jesus for so long, but she eventually gave her life over to him. And she's kind of rough around the edges and to edit heavily this, this conversion story. But look at what she said. She said, I did not mean to become a Christian. I have been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God, I would rather die. I would have rather died at that point than to have my non-believer friends know that I've begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond. But I never felt like I had much of a choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, yelling outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. I resisted as long as I could. Like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I would not, could not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses or something like that. Anyway, he wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable and he won. I let him in. And this is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, come in. I quit. And that is the invitation of the gospel. That because of Christ and what he has done, we can just lay before him and say, I quit. I quit trying to to hold the world together on my own. I quit trying to scheme. I just want you. And that is the invitation for us here this morning to lay down our self-sufficiency and give our lives to the one who won't let go until he blesses us. God will stop at nothing to help us see that he is everything. And if we're doubtful about that, 
we need not look further than a bloody cross in an empty tomb. Where God, in his goodness and and in his pursuit of us, would send his son to die in our place, face death, face wrath, face judgment for us, and rise again. That is the the extent that our God will go to help us realize we don't have to control the world, to help us see that he will stop at nothing, and and to invite us to trust in him.